Get early access to the archives of shows like these. Subscribe at Substack. Go to truthjihad.com and click the subscribe at Substack link. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome, this is the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio, broadcasting from an undisclosed location somewhere in the woods of western Wisconsin. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing on all sorts of dissidents, heretics, and other interesting individuals with points of view way outside the Overton window of the mainstream institutions. One of those institutions is, of course, the Academy. I've uh, spent some time there myself, actually. Uh, I was institutionalized there for quite a while, actually. And tonight we're bringing on some refugees, or you might even say escapees, <laughs> from the institution. Uh, the second hour tonight... Professor James Fetzer, history of science guy, sorry, philosophy of science guy from the University of Minnesota Duluth. And of course, they probably don't want us breathing the name of their institution in the same breath as Jim Fetzer will come on to discuss his appeal to the Supreme Court in Posner v. Fetzer. And he'll also have things to say about all sorts of other things, including the, uh, the truckers getting their bank accounts frozen and, uh, of course, what's going on in Ukraine. In the first hour, another free-thinking academician is joining us. That's Michael Rechtenwald. He became rather well-known. In fact, he had the same kind of 15 minutes of fame that I had a while back. Um, in both cases, we scandalized people by saying things you're not supposed to say, and the media picked it up, and colleagues, at least a few colleagues in my case, freaked out. But ultimately, in Michael Rechtenwald's case, it seems that free speech prevailed to a certain extent, which is more than you can say in my case. In any case, Michael Rechtenwald has been putting out all kinds of great analyses, uh, and most recently he's been talking about woke capitalism. It's great stuff, highly recommended, and it's an honor to have him on the show. So welcome, Michael. How are you? Great, Kevin. How are you? Good to be here. I'm doing well, and I'm always happy to have you on the show. I really uh, admire your work and the, the way you stood up to the forces of conformity and mediocrity in the academy and are still calling it the way you see it. Uh, that's that's what I thought we were always supposed to do, but silly me. Yeah, that was supposed to be academic freedom, which is great as long as you don't use it. There you go. Yeah, that's kind of freedom in general, in fact. And, you know, that, that underlines a kind of a contradiction in the guiding philosophy of liberalism, uh, which says that the individual's um, pursuit of happiness, according to whatever criteria the individual wants to pursue happiness, it's none of society's business, really. They're all at the same level, is the be-all, end-all, and the ultimately the only value that society can be organized around. And that's led to all sorts of uh, craziness, both free market craziness, where corporations do whatever the heck it takes to make a profit. But now woke capitalism is coming along, telling them that you have to conform to these various sorts of liberal progressive shibboleths. And I think that's a failed attempt to reform liberalism 
and it's not going to work. Liberalism is going to collapse. Would you, would you agree with that? I'm not sure about liberalism. I don't, I don't even know what that means anymore. Um, but I think what's going to, what's going to collapse is the economy, uh, based on what they're up to. Uh, it's, it's a very, uh, pernicious, uh, intervention that they're making into the economy, uh, to, uh, you know, basically force conformity, uh, upon these companies and, and to, uh, essentially totally dictate to them and, uh, uh, I can talk about what kind of uh, development that's going to bring about economically. I think it's uh, it's going to collapse under its own weight. Uh, it's such a, a mammoth uh, undertaking that they're doing. And, you know, if you'd asked me 20 or 30 years ago, would it be a good idea to have corporations consider the effects of their actions on others, on, on the people around them, uh, and, and stop just going for the bottom line, I would have said, well, of course. But uh, the way they're doing it now it seems questionable at best. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're using all of these euphemisms to describe what they're up to, stakeholder capitalism. Uh, you know, it's all about the environment and uh, social justice and so on and so forth. But you know, I, I've just seen this movie before, Kevin, and the way they use language and the way that they basically it's double it's double speak. You know, the, what they say and what they do uh, are two different things. And I think it's it's engineered to set up monopolies even greater than we have right now. This more monopolization, more power to the corporate heads. They're actually going to have governmental power. Beyond what they already do, they'll be dictating to uh, citizens what they can and cannot do in conjunction with the state. So it's it's like the worst of both worlds, really, in terms of capitalism and communism. We have like a, well, Giorgio Ambegin has called it communist capitalism. I call it so, a corporate socialism. Uh, but whatever you call it, it's not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. And it seems that even some of the people who are behind it are backhandedly admitting that it may not be so good. You analyze that Super Bowl ad where a kind of a, a stand in for Klaus Schwab, uh, pretending as Dr. Evil is told that he can take over the world, but he should save the world first and then take over the world. And, and that, <laughs> that, that kind of summed up the, the whole thing, didn't it? Yeah, that's exactly the uh, agenda. I mean, they're, they act like they're coming to the world's rescue, but it is the most uh, thoroughgoing uh, surveillance state and control uh, that you can imagine. I mean, they just want to have control over everything and everybody, uh, including uh, basically all the natural resources, which will all be digitized and given a digital identity and the Internet of Things, and each person will also be a digital entity that they'll have all the information on. Uh, the digital ID is something that the WEF, the World Economic Foundation, which Klaus Schwab heads, uh, is touting all this stuff regularly right on their website. There's nothing hidden about this agenda. And it seems that we're in a whole new world because I remember not so long ago, just a few decades ago, when there were these wiretapping statutes that made it a, a, I think it was a felony, uh, to wiretap somebody. And what does wiretap mean? It means to intercept their 
telephon- telephonic communications. So you listen to somebody's phone call, you tap their phone, what have you. That's, that's wiretapping and you go to prison for it. And today our electronic communications are being wiretapped constantly by all sorts of of spies. I mean, they should, all of these people doing that, uh, from, you know, the, the, the heads of Facebook and, and, uh, Twitter and the, the other internet oligarchs, those people should all be in prison for wiretapping, shouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing more than wiretapping because they're, they're not only tracing our, our vocal, uh, emissions, if you will, they're also tracking all of our web searches. Google has all these records on every single, uh, person. They've profiled them. They have everybody, everybody has a profile and they actually not only, uh, record, you know, basically record your every move on the internet. They also try to dictate what you'll do and what you'll think by feeding you a certain, uh, a certain order of news and certain news items and completely banishing others as we know so well, right, Kevin? I mean, probably we're both been downranked by Google so many times we can't even count it. Because, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we're calling them out on what they're doing, and this is mis- or disinformation or malinformation or whatever they call it. Uh, whatever we do is just deemed misinformation and disinformation and utterly dispensed with. So they're controlling consciousness, really. Uh, it goes further than, you know, just knowing what we're saying. They're, they're, con- they're trying to control consciousness. I, I don't think they can achieve it. Because if people can see what they're up to uh, and that, you know, can see through it, uh, they retain their consciousness and they retain their autonomy over their own thoughts. Indeed. I think if we do go back to that pre-Internet reference of, you know, what people could do and couldn't do in terms of spying on other people's telephone conversations and then recognize that the Internet is just a larger, more powerful telephone connecting everybody with everybody else. And back in the days of AT&T, it was illegal to listen in. It was illegal to to tap in and, and grab data about what people were saying and then use it to predict and control their behavior. That would have been beyond uh, the ultimate Orwellian nightmare in those days. I mean, nobody would even imagine that humans would ever stand for such a thing. And uh, so if, if we go back to that model and recognize the Internet is just a big telephone connecting everybody to everybody else, nobody has a right to wiretap or, or collect any data whatsoever from anybody's private phone calls or Internet communications. Nobody has the right to make a telephone work better for one person or another. They're, they all have to be on the exact same level playing field. You know, if, if we introduce that concept, and then put some really heavy penalties, and I would suggest capital punishment for violators, maybe we could change this. Um, you ready to get behind that? Well, I don't know about capital punishment. I'm I'm uh, kind of like against that, but it, it's... Even for Zuckerberg? Oh, uh, I'd rather, I'd rather uh, be tortured with his own techniques uh, to see if we could gaslight him to death like he's trying to go. do to us. <laughs> okay. uh, but, you know, I mean, they are... Um, what it comes down to is you're right. It's it's like wiretapping. It's very much like wiretapping. And, and uh, if the Internet is a utility, which it should be considered, I think, a utility, and most of these platforms should be considered utilities as well. Never did you get thrown off of a phone uh, by a phone company off of your line for saying the wrong things. Never did you get censored by your own phone company. Never were you, you know, basically policed for your uh, for your statements by the phone company. 
they they connected you and they let let the, the conversation go. They let they let you even along, if you spread misinformation. I, I don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: we 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 know that this is double speak, right? Because they're they're the ones that are perpetrating the misinformation and disinformation. That's a propaganda. Uh, a machine that we're up against, you know, and it takes almost everything in your power just to say stay sane under this assault. Uh, I think the assault is so un- unremitting that it, it just takes a control, you know, it takes so much effort just to maintain one's own uh, perspective and to also uh, resist this kind of constant uh, barrage of propaganda, doublespeak and, and gaslighting that, that we're uh, being subjected to. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. It is almost a full time job just uh, resisting the brainwashing and staying sane. And then one thing that drives you even more crazy is when you see friends and family who succumb and uh, yeah. you know, get washed over the waterfall with the propaganda and become completely stark raving bonkers. Uh, and and it's, it's so interesting how so many personal relationships have been damaged by this propaganda. Indeed, I've seen it in my own family. Uh, one telling the other one to get vaccinated and a fight ensues and now they don't speak to each other. Uh, things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really terrible. And, and speaking of, of the vaccination issue, did you see like the last, like just today, uh, two new news items uh, crossed my, <laughs> my electronic desk? One of them, I'd seen a little bit of this before, which is, that it looks like Pfizer and Moderna's stock is cratering, presumably Tanking. because investors have noticed <laughs> some of the data about the yeah. harmful yeah. effects of these vaccines. And then the other is that a Swedish study, I think it was, showed that it turns out that these mRNA vaccines actually do this reverse transcriptase thing where they basically alter your DNA and you could keep on, you know, it could be altered in such a way that you keep making spike protein uh, indefinitely or how, you know, in, in ways that they didn't intend. Uh, did, did you see that stuff? Yes, and more. There's other things, too. Uh, the Scottish uh, uh, the St- Scottish data, which has now been squelched by Scotland, showing that people with the vac- who have been vaccinated, double vaccinated, and triple vaccinated are faring far worse in every area, including uh, basically uh, infection, uh, sickness and death. So, uh, it's all showing to be a complete charade. And yeah, Moderna's stock, I think, is down 70%. Uh, there's a very smart guy that's been, uh, that was a BlackRock Inc. uh, investment manager, portfolio manager. He has called, he has blown the whistle on this, uh, and says all the smart money has already left Moderna and most of it is starting to pour out of Pfizer as well, and uh, he's saying that uh, really what he thinks all of these uh, totalitarian measures we saw in Canada, that we see in Canada, he thinks it's more than power. What they're trying to do is get ready for uh, the kind of uprising you might see when the economy completely collapses uh, and uh, social uh, security and pensions are threatened by uh, the market crash. Uh, this is really uh, possibly what's happening here. Uh, and, of course, now we have a, a global uh, 
you know, situation with war. And this is another way of I don't, I'm not saying that this war was begun to distract or deflect from all this, but it's certainly doing that. Isn't it? It's it's doing that trick. Nevertheless. Yeah, I actually got an email from Ron Unz uh, a couple of hours ago saying, you know, I may have to admit that you back skeptics were were right, you know, citing a couple of these stories and then saying, you know, if I were a, a conspiracy theorist, I would wonder about the timing here. <laughs> you know, just this war yeah, that's breaks right. out just in time to distract from all the bad news about vaccines and the trucker convoy and on and on. Yeah, just when they were saying, you know, it was what, uh, I guess 18 months ago, 24 months ago uh, or less, you know, that the uh, the vaccine would change your DNA. And people said that was insane. What what a crazy idea. That's mm-hmm. like David that. Icke saying that lizard people uh, rule the British throne and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just like that. Or, the, you know, the, the ruling class is really, uh, you know, an alien force. You know, these are not really humans. You know, no, this is this is very simple. This is mRNA, which obviously, you know, interlaces with DNA and uh, makes it function. So how could, you know, why would you think it's so far-fetched that mRNA injected into your body to do a certain thing would not inter- would not mess with your DNA and make for some sort of replication that we don't want? Uh, well, is, is, yeah, I, I didn't know myself. I, I was kind of, you know, I don't have enough of a background to feel very confident about, but I did read some stuff early on that made the case that it was not at all implausible that it could actually alter DNA, and now it looks like that's true. Yeah. What do you know? So what is the conspiracy but something that's basically said six to 12 months early uh, in effect? Yeah. So how come we conspiracy theorists aren't uh, making fortunes uh, shorting the market, shorting (laughs) Pfizer and Moderna? Well, you got to have for my case, I I don't have the capital to do it. So, I mean, uh, if I did, if I could turn a couple thousand into a couple million, I I guess I would. Uh, I mean, you know, but I don't have that to risk. So uh, those that have the, that to risk, maybe they are taking advantage of it. Like this uh, portfolio manager, uh, his name is uh, Dowd. Uh, I forget his first name, but he's D-O-W-E, worth following on Twitter, by the way. He uh, is really on to the, the economic aspect of uh, what's going on. And then he extrapolates from that to the political, which is very interesting. I think he's uh, doing a fine job. And there are a number of people like that, these investment watch types who are kind of uh, both you know, doing the conspiracy beat, the thing that I do, and then the investment advice beat, which is quite different from what I do. But it seems to come together a lot more than you would think. Absolutely. What I do is I look at financial uh, news a lot more than uh, I, I used to. I, I look at financial news because it doesn't it doesn't hide anything. Uh, it really doesn't hide anything. You can see who owns what, how they're all connected, uh, what's going on with various stock, of course, but also, uh, you know, the kinds of uh, interlacing between these various players that they can't hide once these financial transactions uh, have gone down. And so you can track and trace what's up with all of these things. And, you know, speaking of which, you know, Larry Fink has been a special uh case for me i mean this guy is is uh running of course uh he's a very big player with the wef but of course he's running blackrock inc and he's also running the fed in effect he is literally running the fed uh so he's telling them and they're instituting the policies that he he says to put in place 
Uh, and uh, they're in a deep they're in a deep dive in terms of uh, debt. I mean, it, it is some unbelievable. And so they've got to find a way to get out from under this debt. And one of the ways they're doing it is by inflation, because they're trying to pay uh, less money. So one way to pay less money is to make more money so that what you what you buy, for example, if I if I bought something from you for five hundred dollars a year ago and I was or maybe fifteen thousand, I say I was making payments over time. Well, if you devalue the money, that product's value has just gone down. Uh, So that's what they're doing. Uh, They're inflating. uh, they're, They're instituting inflation so that what is owed is really much less. If I pay you $1,000 today, it's it's a lot different than a year ago. So uh, that's what they're up to. And, and when you think of an analysis like from Michael Hudson, he thinks that the big well, economic uh, struggle is the class war, not so much between the proletariat and the capitalists, like Marx said, but between the uh, the, the borrower and the lender. And the lender always yeah. has surplus money. That's why they're a lender. The borrower doesn't have enough money. That's why they're the borrower. And that history is a series of cycles of struggles between these groups. And from that viewpoint, one could argue that the inflation is helpful to a lot of borrowers, harmful to the lenders, and therefore it's actually helping the ordinary folks uh, more than, than the wealthy. Um, of course, most of us don't like inflation, and there are people on fixed incomes and pensions, of course, who are badly hurt by it. But uh, there is that argument. You know, I, I even hear it from some of my leftist friends that, oh, the inflation isn't so bad. It's actually you know, good for people like us who are in debt. No, there's, there's some truth to that. I, w- I would have to admit that. There's some truth to it because, like I, like I just said, if I'm, if I'm paying for something that I, that I paid 15000 for over time, and uh, it, I'm paying like a thousand a month or something like that, then that thousand is worth much less than it was uh, when I bought that item, and that fifteen thousand is really worth less. So uh, this is one of the reasons that, that they are that they're carrying a lot of debt themselves. Uh, and you know, as as you very well know, the money is made up out of thin air anyway. Uh, they just they just make money out of nothing. Then they lend the money. This is all purely totally autogenesis here there's no there's nothing behind this money it's completely fabricated so uh they can do anything with this they want and the fed has changed so many uh, changed a major policy uh in august of 2019 when they started basically uh instead of just giving money to banks they're actually giving it directly to uh what they call the retail market so this is changing everything and they're trying to control this out-of-control situation in which they have uh, trillions and trillions of dollars of debt and uh, they're not able to uh, recuperate. Well, you know, there's another kind of analysis uh, that holds that the reason that we've been able to basically keep growing economies using this bizarre system that's based on usury which all mm-hmm. of the ancient wisdom tells us is evil and unsustainable. And obviously, usury right. is mathematically unsustainable. If you create your currency by lending it into existence at interest, there's mathematically no way that it can ever be paid back. And the exponential nature of the interest, compound interest, means that basically the lenders end up with everything. So 
uh, that's why there's been such a strong prohibition of usury historically. But we've mm-hmm. had usury dominance. The oligarchs are basically the big usurers. It's been that way for well over a century now, and the economies have grown and grown and grown. And people like uh, James Howard Kunstler, who was on this show, was it last week, I think, or the week before, argue that it's been possible because of fossil fuels, which have provided energy, that then causes eco- real economies to grow uh, exponentially right along with mm. that exponential interest in currency creation. But we're reaching the end of that now. We're hitting peak oil and so on. And uh, and the woke folks who tell us that we can easily transition to renewables are kind of living on another planet where the physics is different. Um, so yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, so you would agree with that? Uh, I agree that the that I'm not sure about peak oil. I just don't have enough evidence to to speak on that. But I would say that uh, what they're trying to do is transitioning to these renewables is just re- is not going to work. I mean, there is no way we can generate sufficient energy using renewables. And they're driving all these corporations into it and punishing those who don't go that way with this ESG scoring. That's the environmental, social and governance score, which is basically meant to starve out non-compliant uh, organizations, companies, corporations, and to reward the others. So it's uh, a cartel, it's a cartelization method in order to uh, create a cartel or cart- a number of cartels and to basically stave off competition and control all the market uh, and thin down the herd of competitors. Uh, that's what I think they're up to. I think, I think you're right. And it's it's an interesting way to do it, isn't it? To sort of monopolize moral virtue and use that as yes. an entry barrier. <laughs> yes. They just decided on this one. You know, I read a re- really interesting article actually by a Marxist who talked about wokeness and how, you know, it's basically being used, like you said, as a shibboleth. And, it, you know, in, in terms of like um, getting into the elite, uh, there's an overproduction of elite aspirants. And so they're using wokeness as a way to eliminate people. Well, they used to do sword fighting, you know, you know, so it really is arbitrary in some sense. Uh, in terms of the economy, it doesn't look as arbitrary because there's a climate crisis, supposedly. And I think it's well overblown. Uh, I think it's there is some change in the climate. But uh, I think this catastrophism is completely a pretext uh, for gaining further control and uh, for uh, instituting like draconian uh, austerity measures for the masses, uh, you know, don't eat meat, you know, eat, eat insects instead, uh, basically don't drive anywhere, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So there's a massive uh, effort on the part of the elite to really reduce our income and to reduce our expectations, to reduce our prospects, to reduce our consumption, and to reduce basically everybody to a sort of what I call actually existing socialism on the ground with oligarchs on top. It's, It's the most bizarre amalgam imaginable. So it's own nothing, eat insects, and you'll be happy. You'll be happy. And you'll have no privacy. They also said that. You'll have no privacy, but we'll, you'll love it because you don't need privacy. What's it for? 
Wow. Uh, so, so, so we all have to be basically exhibitionists, taking great pleasure <laughs> and being spied upon. Exactly. And <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll feel well, you'll feel so good about yourself if you're in total conformity with the powers that be, because this is the one way to identify with them and to identify yourself in terms of them, which is really another function of wokeness is to be able to identify uh, with the elite and to feel like you're part of the elite. You know, this is what they do to academics. You, you know that very well, the way they use uh, this kind of uh, kind of shibboleths and uh, other methods of entry into the so-called uh, elite status and they're really just controlling you that way, and you're not getting anything like that. You're not really part of any elite. You're just made to feel like you are. Right. Yeah, well, that's partly how they get away with paying you so little when you're sort of at the uh, the entry level in uh, graduate school and then your, you know, your first uh, teaching job and things like that. Um, and, and, of course, people in the academy are notorious for investing all kinds of ego in these little trivial territorial wow. disputes with their fellow academicians. I'm sure you've seen some of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, people taking claim, and the niches are so narrow and so absurd. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the things that I see people writing about, I still get, I'm still a member of various academic platforms like academia.edu and uh, ResearchGate. And what I see these people spending and pouring their lives into is the most arcane nonsense imaginable. Uh, it just strikes me as so absurd and pitiful, really, uh, that this is being done to people or they're submitting to this, really, uh, to have so such a trivial, specific concerns for such absurd, uh, arcane uh, niches uh, that really mean nothing, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, that really have no consequence whatsoever. So I'm real happy to be out of the academy myself uh, in the sense that I can do what I want and say what I want and actually pursue the kind of things that are, I think are more important than that. Well, you know, in Don DeLillo's satirical novel, White Noise, the uh, professor hero has kind of created the field of Hitler studies, which was pretty hilarious back then. But but now you look at that and you say, well, you know, Hitler was actually an important uh, world historical figure. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, that, that guy was not quite as ridiculous, even in the satirical novel, as a lot of real life professors are today with their bizarre sort of non-binary queer this that the other stuff um you yeah. know makes hitler studies yeah. look pretty respectable oh yeah absolutely i mean this kind of things that are passing for scholarship right now it's beyond belief i mean you don't have to really have any what you have to do is you have to master this plug and play jargon uh and just you know basically these are almost pre-formatted you know pre-formatted uh, writing because you just take like throw a few of these things together like heteronormative heteronormativity uh and, and cisgendered this and that and just throw these things together and this passes for scholarship this is what's going on yeah i think some of the humanities people may and the social sciences people in particular you know they may have looked at some science journals and they know hey the scientists and the mathematicians those are the really smart people and so they look at at what those guys do and it's totally indecipherable. It all just reads like jargon. And so they say, hey, well, we're going to have to just, you know, invent some jargon, too. So our that, stuff can true. be just as tough to read as theirs. That's a very good point. I think there has been a lot of mimicry 
of the scientific fields by the humanities and social sciences, particularly the social sciences, as you said. But in the case of science, what they do is they create terms in order to uh, really uh, kind of isolate uh, things, isolate objects, and uh, then they have more, it's a tool to manipulate these objects. Whereas in this, in humanities, uh, they don't think language has anything to do with reality, uh, thanks to deconstruction. The idea that the, there's this disjunction that can't be breached between language and the world it describes. So they just go free for all with this nonsense. Yeah. So how long can a culture that doesn't believe in, in truth last? It's a good question. It's really been uh, eroded significantly, subverted, I would say, really. It's been subverted. And so we don't have any, you know, we're in a, besides all the other crises we have, it's an epistemic crisis. Uh, we don't know what the hell is knowledge anymore. We didn't even know how to, you know, uh, it's, it's, we're, we're basically the, the leadership, I think, are postmodernists, okay? They, they have mastered postmodernism, whether they read it or not. They are basically using it as a way of making things so crazy that we, we have this difficulty finding the truth. Uh, and then they basically suggest that there is no truth, that everything is just uh, subjective and there's just uh, your truth and then there's my truth and then there's Sally's truth and then there's uh, Sally becomes Sam's truth and, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of an epistemological solipsism that they've put us into, uh, tried to put us into, and it takes everything in, in, uh, in one's power uh, to, cont- to continue to try to pursue knowledge and and basically you know in 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 uh in pursuit of the truth i don't know if you caught putin's latest speech about the empire of lies that was his most rip-roaring speech yet and i think he he nailed it in several respects and one of them that is i think that phrase the empire of lies is really good that's something i would like to copyright like i wish i'd copyrighted the term false flag you know 10 15 years ago when i started doing false flag weekly news and and now the you know, big media would have to pay me a nickel every time they said it and i'd get rich oh wow they, that would be great yeah, they were accusing putin you know of planning all these false flags and there was that one press conference where, where they were saying that you know, Putin's he's got this whole thing filmed. He's got he's got like a, all of these very realistic bloody atrocities that he created in some Moscow version of a Hollywood studio. And he's going to break it out and say that, oh, there was this terrible attack on Donbass and blah, blah, blah. And false flag, false flag. False flag. I said, wait a minute. This is like the mainstream media is starting to issue these uh, I know. false flag warnings. They're stealing our stuff. I, I saw that. I saw that. That's very interesting, isn't it? How they have actually appropriated that language. And now, you know, because any time that was used, that was deemed, you know, that basically uh, was a red flag that you were some kind of conspiracy theory if you, theorist if you used that phrase. Now they're using it. This is what I mean about how they uh, appropriate and also then uh, twist and gaslight us with uh, this kind of language that they're putting out. And I think that's a brilliant phrase, empire of lies. Uh, I mean, if you look at the Ukrainian situation, which I'm not an expert in, but I do know that we we undertook a coup there in 2014 and installed uh, undemocratically, uh, basically a neo-Nazi regime and uh, who was very, very, very bellicose and very uh, also very, very had a great deal of uh, animosity towards Russia. And this started the new policies towards Russia. And that started 
their torture or their kind of a campaign against the people in the, the regions of Donbass. And uh, this is certainly a pretext for what's happening right now. I'm not I am not exonerating Putin at all. That's not the same thing. Uh, I'm saying that the pre, you know, they established conditions that helped to give Putin uh, the rat, you know, the kind of, uh, shall I say, the reasoning or the rationale to do what he's doing right now. If you put yourself in the shoes of someone like Putin or the American leaders of the empire, you know, our platonic guardians, either way, you know, you realize that it must they have to be pretty crazy borderline psychopathic or in some very warped way you could even call it heroic i guess if they're trying to keep their values uh, to be in that position you know you, you look at i don't know if you've read like daniel ellsberg's book the doomsday machine where he describes his rand corporation work looking at the u.s nuclear command and control chain discovering that the situation was it was like worse than dr strangelove you know he discovered yeah. it throughout the 50s U.S. Right. doctrine is the second war breaks out, we're going to fire everything we have, not only at Russia, but also China. So five minutes after hostilities commence with Russia over, like, people start shooting at each other in Berlin or something, we're going to murder more than 500 million people instantly, like inside of an hour and a half. 500 million people in an hour and a half. And we're going to kill everybody in China, or almost everybody in China, too, along with Russia. Why? Well, they're communists, too, and why not? You know. So right. that was the doctrine. And then, so how do we make sure that somebody doesn't start this by mistake? Well, theoretically, the president has his nuclear suitcase, and he has the only button. But what if they nuked Washington? You know, the Soviet embassy has a portable nuke in there, and they could just take out Washington whenever they want. So we have to devolve that command chain, you know, down the command chain, give those people little nuclear buttons themselves and come up with these uh, kinds of Rube Goldberg contraptions to try to make mm -hmm. it so that each of these thousands of subcommanders down to like staff sergeants stationed off in Bali or whatever that has this nuclear button actually couldn't just use it anytime they wanted. But it's it's just insane. And so anyway, it's my insane. point being that poor you know, Putin, he sees NATO is coming up with these better and better faster, more accurate first strike weapons and pushing them closer and closer to Moscow. Right. You know, if you were in that position, what would you do? Yeah, this is the Cuban mis um, missile crisis for Russia, in effect. That, you know, basically they want to put nuclear weapons right on the border. Uh, so, you know, 150 miles from uh, from targets. So uh, this is very, you know, there's it's very, it's a very... Precari uh, very precarious uh, situation, and uh, you know, there was absolutely no negotiation on the part of the uh, Biden administration about this. They wouldn't concede a thing, a single thing. They wouldn't even acknowledge the facts, of course. Uh, so, yeah, that's what NATO wants to do. They want to uh, subsume Ukraine to bring it in and then po post nuclear weapons on the border of Russia. So this is what he saw, and I'm not exonerating what he's doing. I think it's dreadful. I think it's horrible, and I don't approve of it. But he, you have to look at it rationally as what, what kind of stupid people would basically antagonize an actor like that. Well, they're playing a very high-risk game, I guess, 
And I'm sure they wanted this. I mean, it, and I, I think it's quite possible that one reason they decided to really provoke Putin right now and then not even go to the negotiating table and basically, you know, force his hand is that, as you say, there's a debt crisis and now they can get away with trashing the economy, uh, and won't be blamed for it because it's, it'll be wartime measures. Uh, that it distracts from the complete failure of these vaccines and the news about the vaccines. It turns out they're just as bad as the conspiracy theorists said, or at least some of the conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yes. They haven't killed everybody. Yet. So anyway, it seems to me the Western Empire uh, controllers wanted this war and pushed the right buttons. Whether they wanted it as big as this, I don't know. And where they want to go with it, I don't know either. But I, I'm, you know, I, I don't believe there's sort of one all-seeing eye in the pyramid that's controlling everything. But I do think that very often these wars are partly created by, you know, not by the obvious person in this case, Putin. I don't think this is a war that Putin particularly wanted. I think it was predictable that this was going to happen if you push enough buttons. Right. And they wanted it. Yes, absolutely. I can't help but think that you know. Look, if they didn't want this to happen, they would have been prevented. So I have to think it's the same way that you do about this. This was actually intentional in some sense. Uh, they actually wanted to precipitate this kind of conflict, and probably for some of the reasons you're mentioning. And uh, it's a huge distraction, but it, it, it also is, it provides an alibi for, for their previous misdeeds. So uh, it then takes the eye off the ball about all these domestic issues and the fact that we see totalitarianism on the rise. You know, you saw it in Canada where they're confiscating people's property for a protest uh, and uh, freezing their bank accounts and really unpersoning them entirely. Uh, I don't even know if China does that. You know, I mean, they do put people in uh, basically concentration camps, I don't, I'm not sure that they totally unperson people like Canada is attempting to do, and they back down on the uh, emergency, Emergencies Act, its permanence. I think that, uh, that, that, I'm sorry, Trudeau got a call from somebody at the World Economic Forum and said, slow down, this has to be incremental, we can't do this all at once. People have to, this has to be so incremental that it's basically imperceptible. Uh, and that's really what I think they're doing. It's a kind of imperceptible encroachment upon everything, all of our rights and our property and everything else. And they'll take it away little by little, but not real fast, because if they do it fast, people will notice too much. If you lose a little bit of rights, a little bit of uh, mobility here and there, little by little, you know, it's the boiling frog. Uh, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. So Schwab called up Trudeau said, Justin, you've got to boil the, flo the frog a little slower. Uh, Listen, we are going to do the Great Reset, but we cannot proceed at this pace. Please <laughs> slow down with all of these emergencies acts, sir. <laughs> well, that's what I concern <laughs> at, the, at the young global leaders was patience, my son. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that, well that's what what Jim Fetzer is going to talk about in part in the second hour too. Yeah, he, he just published something about that. So yeah, well the wartime 
the thing. You know, whenever a war breaks out, that's the end of civil liberties. You know, a lot of people don't realize that here in the United States, Eugene Debs had to run for president from a prison cell in 1918 or whatever it was because it was World War One. And if you spoke out against U.S. involvement in World War One, you could go to prison like Debs did. And World War II wasn't much better either. So here in the United States in war, and then, of course, the Civil War, Lincoln was rounding up anybody that opposed that war and just uh, throwing them in prison. So uh, I, I wonder whether there isn't a conscious decision being made high up somewhere that, you know, look, this empire is falling apart. We've, we're challenged. You know, China is challenging us economically. You know, Russia is challenging us militarily. Uh, Islam is challenging us ideologically, but we kind of slowed that down a little bit with our 9-11 false flag. Uh, so we're going to have to wage a war here, just like you know almost all empires do when they're being challenged. There's the Thucydides trap that they fall into, and it's going to happen. So let's go ahead and do it, and we're going to have to get our population in line with the, with the program for the war. So let's start getting rid of the freedom um, in time to try to corral people into support for this war that we're going to fight. So I, I, I see a transition to wartime uh, conditions, mm-hmm. an attempt mm-hmm. to, to regiment the population behind a war agenda. And I, I just wonder if it's going to work. I wonder if Putin maybe didn't start stuff a little faster and bigger than uh, they expected, because Putin recognizes that they're going to have a hard time right now rallying the entire population unanimously behind uh, a war that a lot of the, the Trump demographic is is very skeptical about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, the, they've tried to get the left uh, totally brainwashed, and they've largely succeeded. You know, usually the left is the source of anti-war sentiment, but now they've right. neutralized that, and they've turned the left into a bunch of uh, jackbooted, <laughs> mindless uh, marching thugs. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I didn't want to have to be the one. <laughs> yeah, sir, you, you always get in trouble for saying stuff like that, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so what do you think? Are, are we are we entering wartime conditions? Is, is yes, I think that's right. And every time we've had a war, World War One, World War Two, afterwards, the, the, the whatever civil liberties that were uh, abdicated in effect never come back. Um, and that's really, I think, uh, what's up. I think that they're uh, this is definitely moving towards wartime mentality, and therefore sacrifice and all that sacrifice you know and don't you or are you a putin puppet otherwise if you have anything to say about this engagement and this potential uh, co- uh conflict between the u.s and uh, russia then you must be a putin puppet uh which is really interesting because isn't this a reversal you have the left effectively now the ones crying russia 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 whereas you know during the mccarthy era it was the opposite it was the other way around. You had the right calling uh, people for their Russia, 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 and their communist sympathies. Now we have the opposite going on. Uh, we have a leftist McCarthyism underway. Could this save Biden politically? I mean, it looked like he was going under. His numbers were abysmal, and the economy is pretty dead in the water with inflation taken into account. And uh, so it, everything was shaping up for a huge Republican victory in the midterms and probably in the next presidential elections. And maybe it's even Trump coming back. Uh, and, of course, certain folks probably wouldn't wouldn't stand for that. So anyway, do you think that this, you know, World War Three Putin equals Hitler thing is going to pull the, the Democrats bacon out of the fire? Uh, I think it, I think they can do whatever they want, because at this point we're dealing with a uniparty rule. 
I, I don't think there's any efficacy coming from the so-called other side, and I emphasize so-called, uh, because I think, you know, <laughs> with the number of neocons you have on the right, uh, basically this could definitely uh, consolidate or rationalize because I don't think there'll be a real election. What I think it'll do is give him the rationale for saying that he won, for making it, you know, say, well, he won because he, you know, because of the way he handled Russia. Uh, and that'll be a way to justify the election fraud that they'll undertake. Because I do think they engage in that. Well, that's possible. But I just wonder if in a, a year or two, Biden's handling of Russia is going to look very good. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, he's not able to put a sentence together. So he's going to have to have surrogates in there, uh, you know, basically uh, becoming the mouthpieces of this. I mean, they may put him out for a few statements, like, you know, a few, uh, em- you know, a few utterances of moral indignation here and there. But he doesn't have the capability to communicate anything in any effective way. So it has to be done by others, and then the military, of course, uh, and uh, wh- what will they do? We'll see. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't imagine them actually – well, I can see them going into Ukraine very soon, actually. I don't think they'll go really? into Russia. I, I can see them doing that, yeah. Ooh, else? well, uh, I hope you – do you have a fallout shelter in your basement? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously. Uh, I'm seriously. I mean, you know, we could all be toast, uh, literally. Uh because, you know, it could be serious conflagration here. Uh, so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, I, I don't know. When Biden sort of assured us that he wasn't going to fight for Ukraine, um, I was believing him. But, of course, I was believing Putin when he said that he wasn't doing the all-out invasion either. So mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah, but everything Biden said is, you know, reversed. I mean, he has never said anything that he's uh, – I mean, basically, they'll say anything at, at, at any given time. Uh, whatever works at the moment, but now that now that Putin's attacked, this looks different. Uh, this gives it a different complexion. So his countermeasures, everything he said before, will be just forgotten. And the press is already pushing him to say more. Like sanctions are. I mean, sanctions haven't done anything. What are you going to do? You know, they're already trumping up this possibility of some sort of military campaign. And you know the neocons are definitely itching for it, and so is all the, all the military-industrial complex, all the weapons manufacturers who need, uh, you know, more, more and more uh, money spent on munitions. So I wouldn't be surprised if something, some kind of engagement happens in Ukraine itself. Now, have you seen any calls for the U.S. to actually go into Ukraine? I, I don't think I have yet. Not like yet. I haven't from the mainstream. They have to first, uh, you know, they have to first uh, show the, the, the carnage and so forth. So they're going to fuel the outrage. And, you know, there's some reason to be outraged. Uh, it's not a good thing when people are dying. But who knows what's really happening? That's the other thing. We don't really know what's happening. And there's a lot of exaggeration. So it's hard to tell what's what. But, uh, yeah, I haven't seen calls for arms yet, but it, I don't think it's far off, frankly. Mm. Wow. Well, uh, 
I uh, I hope you're wrong because me too. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's definitely you know a lot worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis, and and that leads me to a, a topic that I brought up uh, recently and and took a little bit of flack on from the uh, the right thinking folks, <laughs> the few that still actually uh, subscribe to my newsletter, which is you know I wrote this piece for American Free Press about how what we should really be worried about is isn't COVID, it's nuclear war. And, yeah. you know, just just did some elementary mathematics. And the New York Times tells us that for a vaccinated 75-year-old, uh, that person's chances of dying uh, if they contact COVID are about 1 in 200. And mm-hmm. th- that that was before Omicron. Now with Omicron, that is lower. it's 10, yeah, 10 times lower. So now it's yeah. 1 in 2,000. So you're vaccinated 75-year-old who's pretty much like an unvaccinated maybe 55-year-old has a mm-hmm. one in 2,000 chance of dying uh, if they catch COVID. Well, I mean, that's not good because, you know, one in 2,000, that's, you know, in a population of 100 million people, that's it's not good. But it's it's not the end of the world either. On the other hand, the odds of nuclear war each year are reliably estimated at between 0.3% and 3%, uh, oscillating around, you know, sort of an average of, what, 1%. And so now it's got to be at least 3%, if not higher, uh, and mm-hmm. if what you're saying is true, it's going to go a lot higher than that. Uh, yeah. Are we crazy to run that risk or, or what? Yeah, I mean, it would be crazy, but I think they could. I mean, look, Putin made a gamble that we wouldn't do anything nuclear. And so they could make the same kind of calculation that nothing nuclear would take place if they escalate, uh, if they go into the conflict itself. Now, they may not go in with ground troops, but they may do some bombing. They may do some airstrikes. Uh, that would be hard to figure until there's some sort of an occupation of sorts or there's some way they can target the Russian troops directly, which I, can, I think they can with uh, the kind of missiles they have, you know, these uh, smart missiles and so forth. So it's very possible that they could make some strikes on Russia. It's not out of the it's not out of the realm of possibility. And depending on how much pressure is put on uh, by the neocons and the press, uh, the war-hungry press, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility. I don't like it. I don't like the, I don't like the prospect one, one bit. But I can't see how uh, when sanctions fail, which they will do, because Russia has no need for Western goods, I mean, they can do a lot of deals with China and still still be fine. Uh, so I don't think that uh, the reliance on the West is is is, uh, is devastating a, a prospect of losing as as is imagined or maybe feigned, for better words, maybe feigning the idea that they believe these sanctions will work. And then when the sanctions do nothing, they could then say, well, what are we going to do? He's continuing, and the sanctions aren't doing anything. And then the rationale for for some sort of a, a conflict, entering the conflict and engaging, uh, is there. Yeah, I guess that's all too plausible. And the sanctions actually not only do nothing; they're usually they're counterproductive in the sense that every time the U.S. imposes sanctions on somebody, all of the players in question lose up together and say, how, "How can we get out of the dollar? Let's let's build new." Yeah, campuses. that's true. Yeah, that's true too. They try to get out of the dollar, which would be devastating to the American economy because the American economy is dependent on its being the lingua franca uh, of the world ever since Breton Woods. So this is very significant, uh, could be a very significant blow, 
which could then again be another trigger. Uh, so that's another thing to think about. Well, it is, and that's, you've given us a lot to think about, and you gave me something new to worry about. I hadn't even really seriously entertained the likelihood of, uh, of the U.S. actually taking NATO into the Ukraine to fight Russia. <laughs> I hope that's Yeah, I, I don't think that's beyond the ground, but it could be airstrikes of some sort. Oh, boy. I mean, that, that, would, that wouldn't be good either. Well, no. I think we're, we're hitting the end of the hour. Thank you so much, uh, Michael uh, My pleasure. Appreciate your great work. Keep it up. Okay, thanks. You too, Kevin. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Michael Rechtenwald. He's the chief academic officer and co-founder of American Scholars. And he's taught at many institutions, including NYU. Back with another uh, dissident professor, James Fetzer, talking about his appeal to the Supreme Court in the second hour. This is Truth Jihad Radio, truthjihad.com. <laughs>